You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. It's always enjoyable to come back here, partly because uh, my dad went, uh, grew up in Ostrander and played football for Leroy Ostrander back in the late 60s, and it's always fun to come into town and drive by the football field and wish I could have been there all those years ago to watch my dad play quarterback and uh, what did he play, defensive back as well. Um, it was one of the special things, sp- special things that uh, us sons got to share with him growing up was just throwing the football around. So it's always fun to come back here in part for that reason. And it's a privilege to be here to share God's word with you this morning. Um, I'm married to Tiffany. We have five kids, 10, 8, 6, 4, and 2. I pastor in Stewartville at Redemption Hill Church. Um, so that's just a little bit about me. Um, hopefully that's helpful for you to just know a little bit about the guy who's here sharing God's word. But um, let's turn our focus to God's word. Um, and please turn to Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, 16 through 34. The general topic this morning will be the topic of witnessing, of, of sharing our faith, faith with others, of evangelism. But the songs that we were singing um, about resting in the Lord and, and finding our hope and our help in Him are very appropriate going into this passage. Um, as we come to this passage in Acts chapter 17, we find Paul at what may be one of the low points of his missionary journeys. Um, this passage happens about halfway through Paul's second missionary journey. If you look on the handouts that went around there, you'll see a map at the bottom. And on this second missionary journey, Paul had traveled north along the east coast of the Mediterranean Sea, gone overland back through Galatia, visiting churches that he had established along with Barnabas on his first missionary journey. And then he'd wanted to go into the region that you see there labeled as Asia right in the center, but Scripture describes that God just in one way or another kept preventing him from going into Asia, instead sending him on all the way over to what's on the left side there, Macedonia. So he crosses over the sea. You see where he came to Philippi, which is spelled uh, F-I-L-I-P-I for some reason on this map. Um, And at Philippi is where he and Silas, who is his companion on the second missionary journey, where they were famously uh, beaten and put in the jail and God rescued them in the middle of the night. But uh, the beating that they took there would have left scars on Paul. And they were eventually thrown out of town. They traveled on to Thessalonica. They were again treated badly, thrown out of town, on to Berea, initially received well until the people from Thessalonica caught up with them and forced them to run again. And so in this, as Paul comes to Athens here in our passage this morning, he is on the run. Um, He knows God has been caring for him, but this missionary journey has not gone according to any plan that he had. God has been faithful to bring people to himself through Paul's witness But it has been a hard journey for Paul. It has not been glamorous. It has not been fun in in the earthly sense of the word fun. Um, And as he comes to Athens, you get the sense that um, Paul was just needing to recover. He felt the need to rest. He was waiting for Timothy and Silas to catch up to him so they could continue their missionary journey. Um, But but he was a, a weak and weary man. And with that in mind, let me read this passage and encourage you to pay close attention because for sake of time, I'll just be able to read through it the one time and then we'll uh, go through various thoughts about the passage. Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers 
also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your poets have said, for, this, uh, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among them, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. And Father, I just echo the words of the last song that we sang. We do need you. We need you to be able to hear and believe. I need you to speak clearly. Would you guard us from distraction? Would you give, help us to give your word the attention that you are due? In your son's name, amen. As we go through this passage, we'll first of all look at Paul's surroundings, which are idolatry. And then we'll look at Paul's response, which is mission. And finally, we'll look at Paul's message, which you could sum up in the word repentance. All these around the central theme that God's glory is worth declaring in any circumstance to any audience. God's glory is worthy of declaring in any circumstance to any audience. Even a weak and weary and wounded missionary who needs to rest still recognizes that God's glory is worthy of declaring. And I don't know what circumstances uh, of life may, may be before you. I would imagine that for each one of us, there are people that we could think of right now who need to behold the glory of God in a way that they do not. And maybe we're waiting for a different circumstance. Maybe we're waiting for a change in them. Maybe we're waiting for a change in us. But God's glory is worthy of declaring in any circumstance to any audience. And in fact, that's why we're here today, right? We need to once again behold the glory of God. So God's glory is worthy of me declaring for you from this passage right here, right now. And it will be worthy of you sharing to anyone you can as God gives opportunity throughout this week. And so let's dive in and see how these 
uh, events of this story will encourage us toward that end. First of all, let's look at Paul's surroundings of idolatry. It says in our passage here that when Paul came to Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Perhaps it's helpful for us to get a little bit of an idea of what Athens was like. And, you know, perhaps from history class or from other um, study you've done, you recognize the greatness of the city that was Athens. By the time Paul got there, it wasn't as great as it had been. But just to look back in the history of the city of Athens, um, when the Persians had tried to come from the east and conquer Greece about 500 years before, um, Athens had played a prominent part in resisting them. It had been ultimately almost completely destroyed, um, but its um, fleet of ships that had served so mightily in this war then turned also into a fleet of um, industry and um, trade, and Athens was able to grow and bounce back remarkably as a commercial and cultural center in the world. It reached its peak maybe 450 years before Christ. Um, under a ruler by the name of Pericles. And during the last 15 years of his life, they built a lot of the buildings that we would think of as classic Athens, the Parthenon, um, numerous temples, all kind of other splendid buildings. As one commentator describes, literature, philosophy, science, and rhetoric flourished. And Athens attracted intellectuals from all over the world. Politically, it became a democracy and continued to have an influence for centuries to come. Despite the fact that it began to decline, culturally and intellectually, it remained supreme for centuries. Figures such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno all lived there. Eventually, when this city was conquered by the Macedonians. Maybe the most famous one of them was Alexander the Great. Um, this culture of Athens was spread even further throughout the known world. And so by the time the Roman Empire rose, um, the Romans were lovers of everything Greek. And under their rule, Athens continued to be a cultural and intellectual center for the world. So by the time Paul comes to Athens, he's coming to a city that had been very influential. Hundreds of years before, it had been very mighty. So it continues now to be influential, but its population had declined greatly. It might not be any more than 10,000 people by the time Paul gets there. Um, yet it has a glorious past. It has a lot of tradition. And a part of that tradition was idolatry. They had been dedicated to the worship of a whole host of Greek and Roman gods for centuries, which is why Paul says the city was full of idols. The idea in those days with these gods that they worshipped was that the world was full of different gods that controlled different aspects of our lives or influenced different aspects of our lives. And if you were to keep the God happy that controlled a certain aspect of life, your life would be better. This could operate on an individual basis or it could operate by your city as a whole, giving due reverence to the gods. And so they would erect altars and uh, statues and idols to these gods and, and try to worship every god they could possibly imagine in hopes of having their life go as well as possible because they honored the right gods. If you notice in verses 22 and 23 of the passage, when Paul stands up to speak finally, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. That word translated religious is literally fearful of the gods. The thing that struck him, the thing that provoked his soul as he came into Athens, as he could see they lived in a state of fear of all these gods that they, they felt that they needed to honor properly in order to help their lives be as comfortable and, and safe as possible. They were afraid to miss any. So it must have been exhausting, right? To live your life fearful of missing one of the gods who 
who you might be dependent on to help your life in some way. They had all the gods in the world. No city was better at worshiping all the gods, and yet they still weren't satisfied. Paul recognized you still have altars to the unknown gods that you, you fear you might have missed. Now, Athens of, of that day might seem miles and miles. I mean, it's, it is literally miles and literally years and years away from us, but isn't it remarkable the similarities that are, that are there as well? To the degree that people around us who don't truly know the Lord have any interest in religion, it, it always grieves me. The more you listen to someone talk about their perspective toward God, toward religion, there's a deep-seated fear deep down that I'm not keeping him happy. I need to do something to keep him happy, and I'm not, maybe not doing that. The things that aren't right in my life are probably because I haven't been doing that, and maybe I'm not willing to yet, or maybe I don't know how to, but I'm just not keeping that God happy. Doesn't that ring a bell with conversations that you've had with people, with the struggles you've had in your own heart? It's exhausting. It had left the people of Athens looking for alternatives. And so we see that as Paul began to uh, speak to people in the synagogues and then in the marketplace, he runs into two groups of philosophers mentioned in verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, These were people who would try to, you know, all kind of philosophies rose up within this idolatrous milieu and uh, these would have been ideas that that people would have come up with to try to ease that anxiousness about needing to please the gods so the epicureans were people who believed that everything happened by chance life was just random everything happens by chance that there is no life after death a person's life ends everything they would acknowledge that these false Well, they wouldn't call them false. They would acknowledge that these gods did exist. However, they thought they were distant, remote, not interested in our lives. They weren't going to help us or harm us one way or the other. And so, because of that, life's top purpose was not to please the gods. Life's top purpose was to enjoy pleasure. Enjoy life as much as you could, because when you die, it's all going to be over. That was their thought. And one of the pleasures that they liked to enjoy was intellectual pleasure, to think through all kind of philosophies and and just hear all the ideas that people had um, in the world around them. Another group that Paul ran into was the Stoics. The word Stoic actually comes from a word that means porch and referred to the fact that they used to get together in this prominent portico in the city and and share their ideas together with each other. So they liked to sit around and share philosophical ideas as well. They believed that everything and everyone is God. So they more had the pantheistic idea that there's this world soul and everything is God and God is in everything and so you're God and I'm God and the animals are God and the trees are God, the earth is God and you know, in reality, if everything is God, then nothing is God, right? That was the way that they lived. They were very fatalistic. They believed that everything was God's will, was the, the will of the universe, so to speak, and so life was kind of determined for you ahead of time. It was just going to happen, and you were supposed to live it out. However, since everything and everyone is God, you were supposed to be good to other people and good to other creatures because um, God was in everything. So it was a way of, you know, modifying this fear of the gods in a way that seemed more pleasant to them. And as we go through Paul's sermon, we're going to see how he is intentionally contradicting all of these ideas that are going around um, as he ultimately calls people to repentance. So that was the... uh, background of idolatry that Paul is in there in Athens. That's his surroundings. What was his response? Well, we see right at the beginning of the passage. His spirit was provoked within him 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. He, he was unable to walk into Athens and just admire the glorious architecture and all of the art and all of this, even though he was supposed to be recovering because all he could see when he would look around was idolatry, false worship, lost people, and it burdened his heart. It provoked him. He couldn't help but try to share the good news. So, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, um, presumably going there on the Sabbath when they would gather and declaring to them that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah. And then he would go to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there sharing the good news of Jesus. And we see that his focus was particularly on Jesus and the resurrection, declaring who Jesus was and the fact that his resurrection demonstrated him as the glorious king of all who would one day return. That was the focus of his message. John Stott comments on Paul's perspective while in Athens this way. He says, There is no need to suppose that Paul was blind to the beauty of the city, but beauty did not impress him if it did not honor God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, he was impressed by the idolatrous use to which God-given artistic creativity was being put. This is what Paul saw a city submerged in idols, a city drowning in idolatry. What bothered Paul is that they were misdirecting their creative gifts that God had given, gifts for art, for architecture, for sculpture, for, for reasoning and thinking carefully and wisely. They were misdirecting these creative gifts toward the worship of false gods. And Paul could not tolerate it. They were defying God by their blatant idolatry. I imagine that perhaps Isaiah 42 verses 5 through 9 were running through his head. Paul was brilliantly familiar with the Old Testament. This passage must have been in his mind. Isaiah 42 5 through 9. This is a passage about God's coming chosen servant, the Messiah. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so Paul was provoked. He was burdened that these people were incurring the wrathful eternal judgment of God by every idolatrous act they committed and by all their other sin. Now, we think of ourselves as being much more enlightened in this day and age. I mean, how silly is it to try to worship this whole pantheon full of imaginary gods? But people in our modern Western society still run ourselves ragged, chasing a fulfilled life, don't we? We just do it chasing other things than false gods and idols, at least carved idols. Our world and sometimes our own lives are full of chasing fulfillment through education, full of chasing security through medicine, politics, the right career, full of chasing happiness through a spouse or significant other, chasing fulfillment through being a good parent, happiness through recreation or substances. In fact, if you just look around at 
billboards or the commercials when you're watching TV. Isn't that largely what commercials are all about? Promising you satisfaction, fulfillment, happiness through these various things. Now, it's not wrong for us to enjoy these as good gifts. The problem with commercials is not that products are offered to us. The problem is that they are promised as a substitute for God rather than offered as gifts from God. Education and medicine and political ambition and your career and your spouse, your children, recreational pursuits are all gifts from God. But they're meant to be enjoyed as gifts from Him. And instead, we are encouraged to look around at, we don't, at what we don't have and think, oh, if I could just get that, then life would, that's what I'm missing in life. But Paul himself would later write to the Colossians, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So I don't think Paul would have entered our cities and had a much of a different perspective than he did in Athens. He would look at our billboards and our TV commercials and he would be provoked. And he would have to share the good news of Jesus Christ displaying the glory of God. So I would encourage you to just take some time this afternoon to consider the prominent idols of our area here. What specific things do people tend to look to for their satisfaction? I've I've, I've mentioned kind of a, a, a brief and vague list. Think specifically. Think about what your neighbors or your family members, your children, are looking to for satisfaction and security in life. Think about what you are looking to. And let your spirit be provoked as these things don't match up with God and worshiping Him. But our response is not to withdraw in scorn from people who are caught in false worship. That was not Paul's response. Notice in verse 17 what it says that he did. Because he was provoked, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. His grief over their idolatry did not lead to withdrawing in condemnation. He recognized that there was condemnation from God for that idolatry, and so he wanted to go to people and call them to repentance. his spirit would have matched up with what he wrote to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing out our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Paul knew that the the primary reason that he was in any different condition than, the, than these people in Athens or than the people that Titus ministered among in Crete, the primary difference was the mercy of God upon him, reaching into his lost blindness and slavery to sin and rescuing him. And that's what he was hungry to see happen in Athens. 
And so he had to go and make the unknown God known. That's, That's the heart of our evangelism. It's not ultimately a good thing that good people do to be good people. It's something that burns within our souls because the unknown God must be made known. And we can see the impact that not knowing him is having all around us. And we have to declare his glory. I read this passage and I'm convicted that my perspective towards sin within me and around me should be more like Paul's. I should be more provoked. But to turn this passage into a mere good Christians are like Paul admonition would be man-centered moralism. It would put the focus on ourselves and what we have to do to be good enough for God, and that's not the intent. We must worship our way toward Paul's zeal. The reason Paul was zealous for these people to know God is because he was looking carefully to God and loved him. And so the natural outflow of his life was evangelism. So if you would be a more faithful evangelist in your circle of influence, you too must know God more. Behold his glory and then share what you see. Motivation for evangelism, I think, is far more important than our exact methodology. We can we can go through all kind of delays waiting till we learn the exact right evangelistic method. I just need to know more about this or about that, about that philosophy or this particular area of theology. And in reality, oftentimes those, those things are just excuses. Where if we were personally beholding the glory of God and loving him for who he is, We could not contain it. Paul's response to the idolatry that he saw was mission. So what did he say? Let's finally look at point number three, Paul's message. Paul's message. I think it's important to to notice here that as Paul begins to share this message, he's not being recognized as a a great scholar by the people around him. He's being derided. Uh, If you look in verse 18, some of these philosophers say, what does this babbler wish to say? That word comes from uh, the words for seed picker. They would refer to a gutter sparrow just kind of flitting around in the gutters looking for seeds to eat. And it came to be associated with just useless riffraff. That's what they were calling Paul. A no-name nobody who just had a little garbage that he picked up, but, but we'll hear you. And so they invite him to come and speak to the Areopagus. So it says this in verse 19, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which, which was a council of city leaders who were in charge of determining which philosophies were worth teaching in their city. So they basically get to give Paul the thumbs up or thumbs down on whether he's able to keep sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in Athens. So they ask, may we, may we know what is this new teaching that you are presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And they're really not looking for any profound truth from him. They're just giving themselves to hearing something new. That's what they were devoted to doing. So the philosophers are looking down on Paul. The city fathers take their job seriously because the fame of Athens rested on its intellectual um, Mindset and interplay of competing philosophies. And so they thought, well, it's important for us to at least be able to add this idea to the mix. And so they invite Paul in to speak. And if you were to boil his uh, sermon down into just a few sentences, he described the nature of God 
and man's responsibility to God. This is who God is. This is how we are responsible to live in light of that, which by nature is a call to repentance, right? We've been missing something about God, so if we understand that, life is going to be different. Now, we can sit here and kind of fold our arms and sit back and, and say, yeah, these, these people in Athens really needed to hear this. But humility before God will, will lead us to lean in and listen carefully to what Paul says as well. There are parts of how Paul describes God that although we agree with him in our head, if they really sunk into our heart, they would change the rest of our day. So let me just read this for you, and and I'll only make very brief comments. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Is it not staggering just how dependent we are on God? The American dream would like to hold us up as independent, right? We are not independent. We are dependent on God for everything. If he stopped willing it, in the next second you would stop breathing. So who are we to think that by our good religious deeds we're going to impress him? We don't. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places. So now Paul talks not just about God as creator, He talks about God as the sovereign of the universe. He made all people from one man, Adam, and determines the way our lives will go. Verse 27, what is he working toward? That people should seek God. This is our greatest need, that we would seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So because he is our creator, because he runs the universe, our greatest need is to know him, right? Our world is full of people who are distracted thinking something else is their greatest need. And to verse 27 yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now what Paul is going to do here is he's going to appeal to their experience to say, you already know this. I'm not teaching you something brand new. I'm just explaining to you how things really are and and you already know this deep in your souls. In verse 28 he quotes two familiar poets of their culture, uh, guys whose ideas they would have been familiar with. Um, First of all, he he quotes from a Cretan poet named Epimenides who had lived hundreds of years before. And in a poem he had written, Minos is speaking to his father, Zeus. So you remember that name, perhaps, from the pantheon of false gods so Minos is speaking to Zeus and this is how he talks to his father they fashioned a tomb for thee O holy and high one the Cretans always liars evil beasts idle bellies but thou art not dead thou livest and abidest forever for in thee we live and move and have our being 
So what he's saying is, in your twisted ideas of who Zeus is and your worship of him, you know that it is God. I mean, you're, you're not recognizing who he really is, but you know that it is from God that we get our ability to live. Then he quotes another poet. Um, this man was from Sicily. His name was Aratus. And also, speaking of Zeus, he said, It is with Zeus that every one of us in every way has to do, for we are also his offspring. So it wasn't just other false gods that were um, descendants of Zeus, like this Minos that I mentioned. This, this poet would have said, we're all his offspring. So Paul looks into their um, familiar poets and he says, there's, there's a little item of truth in there and now I need to explain to you how it fits into what is really true, who the true one living God is. What Paul is doing here, he, he's not appealing to their sources as the ultimate authority in life. Instead, he's, he's showing how these sources give evidence to the fact that God is there. He's not distant, and, and we are made to know him. Here's how he continues. Being then God's offspring, as your poets recognize, we come from him. We ought not to think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. He said, you know better than that. Your own ideas are inconsistent. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead basically what he's saying is that in the person and work of Jesus Christ God has acted in such a way as to make idolatry now particularly heinous in, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God has been displayed in such a way that to turn away from him, to resist him, and flee to other idols is particularly tragic and evil. And so he calls them to repent, to turn from their idols, and to turn to Jesus. So what do we do with this? How do we learn from Paul's method? I hope that one clear application is that we look for other things that we're trusting in other than him and seek to look to those gifts as, as gifts from him rather than as our gods. And when he doesn't give them to us, to trust him with what is best. That's, that's one response. But as it regards to evangelism, I think we have something to learn also from Paul's methodology here. Uh, it is sometimes all too common for, Christi uh, for Christianity to be presented as this detachment from the world. You come to Jesus, you're going to run away from the world, and you're going to go hide off somewhere and just be holy people and do these holy things. That's not how Paul presented life and the world. It was Paul who often, as he would write, would encourage believers in how to enjoy the good gifts God had given. Christianity also does not stand back and just have our arms folded and look in, you know, in scorn, shaking our heads at all the false ideas in the world around us. Now, some Christians would condemn Paul for the approach that he took where he actually knew these poets well enough to use what they said in his evangelism. Here's what I think Paul's approach might have looked like, though, nowadays. We don't, we're not into poetry like they would have been back then. But what's the most common form of poetry that we hear? Song lyrics, right? Song lyrics are people's thoughts, the feelings of their hearts, 
put into poems and set to music. That's the song. So when you listen to the music of our world around us, you, you get an eye into the worship of our world. In fact, if you're not discerning, you might have that worship soak into you. So I would encourage you, carefully, take time occasionally to listen to the music that the people in the world around us are listening to. I- enjoy it for, for the good that's there. Enjoy it. Enjoy the musical beauty. Enjoy um, the God-honoring themes that are presented there to the, to the extent that they're there. But keep your ears open for ways in which people are trusting in something other than God. For ways in which the emptiness of people's souls is admitted in that music. And then maybe just be ready to, to comment with somebody. You're in, the, you know, you're in the hardware store and a song's on the radio. Somebody else that you know is in there. Hey, did you hear that song? That guy is trusting in this for his happiness. That's, that's never going to give him happiness. And just plant those seeds, right? You're getting a window into people's souls. When you're watching TV with somebody and the commercial comes on that's promising that this car is going to give you the happiness that you never could have otherwise, just point out that's not true. Happiness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, finally, as we close, I know I've gone longer than Mike advised me to. Uh Finally, there's a couple things that we cannot shy away from. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that he's one day coming as judge. Could you think of two more unpopular themes to talk to people about? Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, right, that's just an old myth. I don't have time to go, in, go into it now, but... but I, I would love to if we could if we could talk later, but of all the events of history that are accepted as absolute fact, few of them are as well attested by good responsible history as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't need to run away from that truth as if you're ignorant. Stand on it. God's word declares it to be true. God's word is good history that declares it to be true. And Paul was standing on the resurrection of of Jesus in such a way that he used it to prove the resurrection of of the dead. Listen here. Um, He commands all people everywhere to repent, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So the fact that Jesus truly rose from the dead and ascended to heaven leaves hanging the fact that he is there, he is God. So what? So he's coming again. And we will all answer to him. And it is based on whether we are trusting in his righteousness applied to us that we will or will not have favor with God. That we do or do not now have favor with God. Brothers and sisters, don't shy away from these truths, though they may be tremendously unpopular. They are at the heart of repentance. They are at the the heart of what truly being saved is, as we know. But don't we often try to come up with all kind of other angles to get to Jesus? Every now and then, what's wrong with saying, hey, he rose from the dead and he's coming again. And what you do with that is up to you and you need to choose wisely, right? And then let God work in somebody's heart. It was Paul's approach. So Paul's surroundings were idolatry. Paul's response was mission, and his message was repentance. And repentance is not just for them out there. It's for us. 
it's our way of life. And so please stand with me as I close um, and respond in prayer to these things. Our Father, we don't gather as the people who are, who are the good ones, the ones who deserve your blessing, the ones who are naturally smarter. We gather as people who are mercifully saved by your grace, who you have kindly, powerfully reached into our lives and turned us from all kinds of idols to the worship of you. Thank you that we can, in our own personal lives and in our gathered worship together, that we can behold your glory and that we can see you as the true living God our creator, our sustainer, our judge. As, you be, as we behold your glory, help us not to sit back in selfish contentment. It was convicting to hear that your glory, if we keep it to ourselves, just stagnates inside of us. It's meant to be shared. So help us to have the, the only fitting response of beholding your glory that we, that we can't help but share it. Yes, for the good of those around us who need to know you, but most of all because you are worthy of being made known. That's why we exist. Thank you for the example of Paul. And most of all, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who to make your glory known and to rescue we who so desperately needed rescue left eternal glories to come and die as a wretched criminal suffering in our place taking the wrath that we deserve thank you that he was sent that he came to us let us be willing to go as we are sent by you and declare your glories in any circumstance to any audience because you are worth it. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.